I was researching the cookbook, I certainly had, they're all my recipes, and I've created more recipes to go with the book, but I kept looking for the theme on the internet. What was emerging? What was the phrase that people kept talking about, whether you're reading uh, about a new deli delicatessen in, in Los Angeles or born-again Jewish food or a different way with hummus in, in some place in New Jersey, I kept looking for the phrase that kept appearing, and that phrase was newish Jewish. Hi, and welcome to The Big Schmear. I'm your host, Beth Schenker, and I'm glad to have you along with me on this next episode. My guest today is Marcy Goldman, master baker and pastry chef, cookbook author, and food journalist in Montreal, Canada. Marcy, welcome to The Big Schmear. Oh, thank you, Beth. I'm delighted to be with you. You have the distinct honor of being my very first guest from Canada, and that's pretty cool. <laughs> well, I'm honored to be a first, in, at least in that category, but it's an honor, as I said. <laughs> I wonder if you could tell me, I thought we'd start with the big picture and then, and then focus more on you and your work, but I'm always interested in learning more about Jewish communities that are outside my experience. And I know that Montreal has a wonderful, active Jewish community on many levels. So I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about the Jewish food scene in Montreal. It's an interesting scene. I mean, Montreal in particular, different uh, international groups or, you know, various communities are very loyal to their roots. So there's not that much blending. So things are quite authentic wherever you go for one type of food or another, it's, you know, we, we call ourselves a mosaic versus the melting pot of the states. But Montreal, in particular, the Jewish community has been very, very strong about their recipes. There's very, there's a couple that are very unique, like Montreal bagels, Montreal cheese bagels, are things that you don't get in other Canadian cities unless somebody knows how to make them or they bring them from Montreal. And I believe, like a lot of cities in North America, the Jewish food scene here is undergoing a revival, things that were old are new again. Uh, millennials are finding things that they find nostalgic and they're starting to make them themselves and of course revamp and respin them a little bit. But I would say the roots are very strong and unique and there's a renewed inspiration or passion for making these things. That's really great, I think, for the Jewish culture and for food. Is it mostly Ashkenazi influence or not necessarily no, I think you're right about that. It, it is a very strong Ashkenazi influence. There are certainly a few Sephardic influences as well that I cover in my cookbook, the things that are more popular like chachuchka or salad kuit. But predominantly it is an East European Jewish food foundation here. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. That's helpful to kind of set the scene for all my listeners so they have a s sense of where you're coming from, literally and otherwise. So let's talk a little bit about you. And I know you have a great deal of cookbooks out there, lots about baking, which is your specialty. Can you tell me where your start in your interest in baking came from and how old you were? Is, it, is this a new thing? Was it in your childhood? No, <laughs> no it seems to be like a sole memory for me, baking and, and food in general and baking specifically. I began um, as a little girl. I always found baking interesting. I loved cooking as well. I lived in a house with many, a big household, one of which was my grandmother, my mother's mother who was blind. And I liked to take care of her. And one way to reach her or connect with her was to make food. So I started baking sort of to impress her and also as a hobby. I thought cooking was interesting, but that got people fed fast, whereas baking to me seems 
a little bit more mythic, a little bit more artistic, and I wouldn't say scientific, but complicated in a very, dare I say, a pretty way. It's a very feminine art, although, I mean, everybody's welcome in the pool. But at that point, uh, growing up, I sort of was drawn to it on all those fronts. And one thing led to another, and I just, that interest continued. In the 70s and 80s, food became a little bit more of a thing. Uh, there was Julia Child and all sorts of cookbooks, and we began, I think all of us collectively got into food, and the, the term foodie was born, and I was part of that. You know, looking for something to do in my early 20s, I was always a writer. I, that's a little bit difficult, or it's hard to sort of jump in and write, you know, the great American novel in Montreal, albeit, <laughs> in your 20s, whereas there was always a response to food. I'd bake for people or cook for people, and there was a huge response. And one thing led to another. I got my English degree at McGill. That didn't, as I say, guarantee me becoming a writer. And I just started baking for restaurants and stores and cafes like Starbucks, and that began to take off. Um, that led to me wanting to know more, and I went to pastry chef uh, school in Montreal. Wow. And so clearly you are a serious baker, and that's evident with what I know about you and what's there on your website, and of course with the <laughs> volume of cookbooks that you've done. I wonder if I could just go back and ask you a couple of questions about your family. So your Russian grandmother that lived with you was blind. Did she do any cooking or did she supervise in some way or give you recipes to try or were you just kind of on your own out there? Uh, I was definitely out on my own. My my mother was generally working. It was a hectic household. It wasn't that traditional. It was very anchoring to spend time with my grandmother, and I had a full free reign of the kitchen. My mother was not very strict that way. I mean, you certainly had to clean up what you did, but she was very happy for any my brothers or I to be adventurous and head into the kitchen and make whatever we liked, whether it was for everybody or just a one-on-one -on -one thing. And my grandmother, no, I don't know because she went blind when she was in her early 20s, mm. how much cooking she did, but she certainly had a palate. And I remember in just doing a little homework about you that you had other family influences, an aunt and your mother-in-law, and I wonder if maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, they were a nice counterbalance to my mother. My mother was very exotic in her food. My mother traveled a lot and was interested in quite diverse international influences. But my father's sister, my aunt Helen, and my then mother-in-law, they were very, very traditional cooks. And from them, I learned the basics, how to flavor things that were non-dairy, like, you know, browning onions with noodles to get them a little bit more flavorful, uh, how to make a chicken soup that wasn't watery. <laughs> and I learned a lot about that type of food that makes everyone, whatever age they are, when they smell that food being made, they say it smells like the holidays, that type of food. Yeah, yeah. I guess what you call it, second generation and first generation. Yeah, it just uh, connects you to, I feel like it connects you to your roots and, and to family memories and all of that. It's so... Interesting to me how that sense of smell, but also just the food, can be a glue to family stuff. Yeah. I, sp I think in particular with Jewish food, which is always tethered to, you know, in a historical or religious holiday, primarily historical holiday, the food symbols are always are quite, quite tightly fused. So when you're having honey cake, you're aware it's honey for the, the Jewish New Year's or the round challah. You're always viscerally aware or unconsciously aware the foods are not just the same things everyone makes and tastes good but they there's a symbolic uh connection with them as well extremely magnetic exactly exactly and would you say that cooking in particular cooking jewish foods 
was a way for you to shape your Jewish identity? I think so, because I was, as I mentioned, I wasn't brought up in a very traditional sense. I had very different experiences than one would expect. You know, at the time I was starting a household, I was newly married later on. I had, you know, the beginning of, I have three sons. And I think food is just very connective, as it was for my grandmother and me, or even getting acknowledgement, let's say, from my aunt or my mother-in-law. I think food does a lot. You could have many conversations that don't go well, but food sort of breaks the ice or brings you back to the table. And I think if you're not, let's say, religious or traditional, you may not be attending services, but you keep up the tradition at the home front. I think that does a lot to broaden your identity. Oh, I, I totally agree. And that's certainly personally speaking that that is um, an important part of how I relate to being Jewish. So, um, and it's kind of why I do the podcast. I mean, you know, talking about food. It's, <laughs> Hence it's, the name. Yeah. yeah, it's just, it's great fun. So for those of the listeners out there who aren't familiar with the name Marcy Goldman, so you've heard a little bit of, about her background, I do want to encourage people to check out your website because there's lots of great things to learn about you and your work. And so tell us uh, what your website address is. It's betterbaking.com. It's pretty easy to remember. It is, definitely. Yeah, it's 21 years online. Wow, really? That's, yeah. That's fantastic. Well, I began it as a home a home page. I didn't, you know, in the 1997 is when I launched. I didn't really, no one knew what the internet was about. But yeah. I just thought, here's an affordable place to, you know, uh, have a little bit of a platform and share recipes. I had no idea it would, you know, grow to the place that it has. And we're still in the early journey of this. I think so. And you were right in the forefront. So good for you. Wow. Oh, well, <laughs> it was like a little, it was artless, but it worked out. <laughs> you mentioned a little bit of this in passing uh, earlier in our conversation, and that is, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more specifically about your path in the culinary work that you do. And it's broad, right? You have lots of I mean, you don't just write cookbooks, which is a whole involvement in itself. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today. Um, yeah, I'd be glad to. I think, you know, between making cakes and things like that for restaurants and then going to hotel school, which got me my pastry chef degree, um, I remember very clearly one day delivering, I think it was carrot cakes to some restaurant, and I was about ready to graduate as a pastry chef. And I remember thinking, how am I going to segue? I, I want to start a family, and I didn't really want to open a bakery, which seemed the most, the, less, the most logical next move. And I happened to be reading the local paper, the Montreal Gazette, and looked at the food section. I thought, bingo. <laughs> I was always a writer. I know how to bake or talk about food. And I pitched the Gazette and started writing for them. But down the pathway, it seemed a little bit more difficult to get other papers on board, like other cities like Toronto and Vancouver, and with a little bit of a, I guess, American moxie and a Canadian girl, I approached the New York Times, and they were very welcome. I said, I'd like to do a piece on Montreal bagels. They were down for that. And that lit my way to writing for most of the American papers and Bon Appetit magazine and Food and Wine. And so things just kept going step by step from food producing to food writing, feature writing into cookbooks, cookbooks into the internet along that pathway you know, I've also taught a lot of baking. I've also done food consulting for restaurants and development, work with other bloggers as well. So, I mean, food is like a gift that keeps on feeding you, so to speak. There's many different avenues and dimensions to it, and I just kept following the next obvious uh, pathway with it. 
But you also had, you had a lot of, uh, what's the, well, you used the word moxie. I mean, to call the New York Times and say, I mean, that's not just your average local paper. So you really <laughs> no. So you really persevered and worked on all these different avenues. I I think you're to be commended. I mean, it's you oh. you've just put together all these great pieces of the food industry and made them work for you and uh, made them work for everybody who's taking advantage of your expertise and knowledge. But what well, a great that's kind of you. Well, no, I mean it's it's not just that. It's like a fact of how you figured well, out how to make that work. Well, I think if you're a writer, you approach it differently than if you're a foodie. And I think part of me has always been maybe a little bit a writer first. Of course, as a writer, you want to get published. And where do you want to get published? In the best markets possible. Right. And I think possibly being a tourist, I'm a little bit stubborn. So if you put a roadblock, that will make me even more zealous about getting somewhere. (laughs) I mean, nowadays, if you called the New York Times directly, they'd be appalled and you'd be a stalker. Right. That's exactly (laughs) right. So I don't know if I could do that. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't now you sort of tweet to an editor and hope they they get your tweet about and you pitch a story that way. But I think I was just very fervent about getting visible. And I felt also the type of recipes and features I was writing, I didn't see out there. I want to know how do you make the best honey cake or the best bagel? And I I saw a lot of older cookbooks and I didn't see much advancement in the craft. People hand down recipes without really improving them. And sometimes they work or they don't. But I felt, as a, I guess as a pastry chef, which made me a professional, I could probably take our cultural heritage and spin it into something really durable and something that I could transmit. And I think that impassioned me right from the beginning. So let's talk a little bit about your cookbooks. And I have to say, I'm not sure which your first cookbook was. I don't know if it was a Jewish-related cookbook. But um, yeah, it, was. it was. And so what prompted you to delve into that world and make your first book a Jewish-related book? I think it was for that reason. I used to be able to get many Jewish features, the assignments from papers, especially the Washington Post has been very good, Los Angeles Times. And I began to feel that food features are great, but there's something ephemeral about things appearing here and there. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice to do in a book? I wish somebody would put it all together in one book. And I guess one day I thought, I guess it's going to be me. It's, it just seemed like, um, like as a writer or as an author, you're always looking for the gap in the marketplace. And I saw the gap. There wasn't a lot of competition in that. I mean, there were Jewish cookbooks. There weren't any Jewish baking books. My first book is Jewish Holiday Baking. And that had been something I, I mean, it wasn't the only avenue that I was writing about. I, I, I've written about everything in food. Mm-hmm. But I saw that as the gap. And I saw that uh, Jewish baking got short shrift in cookbooks. It would be a whole bunch of pages about kugel and soup and and briskets and and meat and chicken. And there'd be a little tiny chapter at the end with a sponge cake and a challah recipe. And to me, the beauty uh, of food is in baking and and in Jewish cuisine. I think in particular when we talk about Ashkenazi Jewish food, the the hallmark to me is the baking part. The other part, which which I've written about at length in the newest Jewish cookbook, is wonderful, but but Jewish baking is, is quite unrivaled. I just happen to agree with you personally, because if I was going to make something, and I, I do cook, um, my favorite thing is to bake. I love that, and that is that is my favorite part. So I'm a fan. I'm a big fan. Oh, okay. Um, I, could deal, I could deal with that. <laughs> In your newest cookbook, which is called The Jewish Newish Cookbook, you define newish 
Jewish cuisine. Boy, don't say that 10 times fast. And um, no. can you explain to, or can you define that for my listeners? Well, the ish part, of course, is very, <laughs> very Jewish type of, you know, it is. so that part makes sense. When I was researching the cookbook, I certainly had, they're all my recipes, and I've created more recipes to go with the book, but I kept looking for the theme on the internet. What was emerging? What was the phrase that people kept talking about, whether you're reading uh, about a new deli delicatessen in, in Los Angeles or born-again Jewish food or a different way with hummus in, in some place in New Jersey. I kept looking for the phrase that kept appearing, and that phrase was newish Jewish, which suggested to me it was something heritage food, but, you know, a little bit more food forward. And so to me, that sort of was a great umbrella term and, and title for the book. So tell me a little bit about other cookbooks that you've done with a Jewish theme. Maybe just give us a quick run through of your catalog. Well, that, that's very quick. <laughs> it's the very first book I did, which is the Jewish Holiday Baking or Treasury of Jewish Holiday Baking, which is uh, a reputation maker. I have a very special honey cake in there, and I'm known as the woman that invented matzah crack, or it's matzah butter crunch, otherwise known as matzah crack. And then this last cookbook, my 10th cookbook, The Newest Jewish, but in between, I've had one other cooking book called When Bakers Cook, which is with the acknowledgement that everyone who cooks is generally... Everyone who bakes is able to cook. But the other books have all been very distinct, what I call baking voices that I, that I harbor in me. One is The Baker's Four Seasons, and that's about baking through the seasons as you're inspired by the produce and sensibility of each season. Mm-hmm. There's a passion for baking, which is just an absolutely over-the-top, glamorous baking book that I did with Oxmoor House. You know, I have quite a few different... Uh, I have little books like Best Biscotti, Best Bagels, Best Holiday Cookies... Wow. I have also the be- uh, the best of betterbaking.com, which is a culmination of my first five years online, my best recipes from my website. So there's a tone and different personality to each of those baking books and different era of me as a baker. That's really great. I will encourage people to visit the website because there's lots of information there about um, about Jewish food as, as well as about Marcy. And how do people, if they wanted to purchase a, one of or more of your cookbooks, do, do they just go to your website? Is that the easiest place for them to find those? Well, all the books are listed there, and they're all connected to Amazon and other markets, online markets for ordering them. So, you know, Barnes & Noble or Amazon, and they could reach certainly reach me there to connect. I also write for a little bit on Jewish food for a website called medium.com. Mm. And anyone that buys my cookbooks, they get a free, a couple of months free subscription to my website, which gives them access to about 2,500 more recipes. That's quite a free bonus. So That's added value at its best. Exactly, exactly. And so you kind of, in my mind, glossed over the fact that you were the one who invented what a lot of people here call matzo crack. And being that it's really <laughs> close yeah. to Passover, first I, I want to wish everybody who's listening to this episode a very happy Passover because it's right around the corner, and I know people are already thinking about Seder prep, the guest list, matzah, lots about matzah. And so my daughter, for one, is she just loves matzah crack, eating it and making it. We love the results of that. So how did that, how did developing that recipe come about? Was it an accident? Uh, not really. I had my, that Passover that I invented, my son was about a year and a half old, my first son, and like a lot of toddlers, he was quite fussy. And I wasn't, I wasn't anticipating Passover of him being very receptive to many foods. I thought, 
what can I make that this kid will eat that, that's simple? <laughs> and I had a recipe for soda crackers that you put brown sugar and butter and chocolate on. And I thought, that recipe is really amazing. And I don't know who invented it, but it's three ingredients. And I wondered if it would transfer to being um, made with matzah. And Eureka, it did. Oh, did it ever. And I never really thought <laughs> twice about it. And it's been presented at the Smithsonian. They've, you know, I think Zabar's has sold it in New York. Like people, I think Martha Stewart had a video or at least she had a, a TV appearance with someone who also, you know, made it. So it's not my most sophisticated recipe, but I think it's popular, and I do remember creating it, and it's sort of nice to see that it's um, getting a lot of mileage and people like it. Oh, it's definitely getting a lot of mileage. I, I know that any Seder that I ever attend during Passover, people always are serving that. I mean, it's it's fantastic you can't stop eating it. That's well, the other thing. You. you really can't. <laughs> That's, <yeah. laughs> I use it a lot of different ways. I have a chestnut tort and I use it as the coating. I grind it up and use it as the coating. I think the fact that it's easy, but it first appeared in various features. I'd write, let's say, on Passover for the Boston Globe. So I think it, you know, it appeared first in people's newspapers before it ever went in the cookbook or again online through such, uh, such sites as Epicurious. But I think what's fascinating is you think recipes are just recipes, and it's amazing how, like anything else, you don't know what's going to go viral, and things can and do, whether it's a recipe or, you know, the formula for Coke or a piece of music. We never know what's going to capture people. Right. Yeah, it's one of those phenomenons of the day, I guess. So when it happens and it's something good, yay. That's all I can say about that. I also want to let people know that you have been kind enough to provide a recipe for us that I'm going to share on the website called matzah Passover cutlets, which looks amazing. And so I have a couple of questions to ask you about that, but also about Passover. And I'll just start with being that you've not just the pastry, but the regular cooking that everybody has to do in uh times 10 around Passover. Do you have any cooking tips or overall tips about how to approach Passover cooking? Uh, yeah, I have a few. And uh, to make a pun, they're a little bit unorthodox. But <laughs> one thing I do is I generally make a lot of the savory things, to, you know, depending on how observant you are. But I'll make the savory things like the soup and the brisket quite a bit ahead. The soup in particular, which is a, generally a big deal, the chicken soup, I'll get it all done and clarified and matzo balls made, and I'll put the entire stock pot in the freezer. And then on the day of the first Seder, I will take that out and put that on the stove on low. So you have a big messy thing that's out of the way and done, and you're not sort of taking it out of containers and putting them back in soup pots. So it's a lot less maneuvering. And I do a lot of, as I say, the cooking quite a bit in advance. And then a couple of days before, or I will turn my attention to the baking. So I separate, much like the professional kitchen, I separate cooking from baking. And it's a different energy. Cooking when, you know, you're cutting up onions and garlic and mincemeat is a very different energy than, than making more delicate things for the Passover sweet table. And I think just dividing it up and doing a lot in advance, even one dish a day for 10 days will lighten your load if you're able to do that. Sounds like a really great tip. And I interviewed somebody a while back for my podcast. Her name is Stacy Ballas, and she had done this major revamping of her kitchen. And she has divided her kitchen really into like the baking area and the cooking area. And I had never thought about 
cooking in that way. It seems sort of like a duh kind of moment, but I hadn't. And it, it just makes a lot of sense in just in dividing those things, even in just in your mind about how to get organized for whatever it is you're making. It, it, I think it really helps. Yeah, I think it helps. I mean, sugar and spice is so different than, than onions and, and garlic yeah. is one thing. Um, <laughs> And it's, I find baking is a more relaxed energy. And, you know, the storage is also a little bit different. Some things have a bit more longevity. You don't have to refrigerate or freeze everything. But it just brings a certain sedateness to the kitchen in a time that can be kind of a chaotic food time. Oh, no kidding. So let me talk to you a little bit about the matzah Passover cutlets. And I wonder, is there anything special about how you came to develop that recipe at all? Well, actually, it's... One of my sons is a a fanatic with chicken cutlets and uh, making things, fried chicken basically is the the bigger dish. And I just worked really, really hard on that to make it something that you'd want to eat anyway, that something, even if it wasn't Passover, you would make it the same way with the matzah. And I just took very special time in in the seasoning of that and the texture of that so that it's, as I say, it's uh, appealing to everybody and anyone who's at your table regardless. But it also doesn't make you think, ooh, who's heavy and this is too old-fashioned. There's something light and fun about it that's quite appealing, and it's very short and easy to make. You can make it very quickly, or you could reheat it in the oven. So, And it's fun also for kids who may not like the full nine yards of brisket and meatballs. Younger kids might like this instead. It's a great option for them. It sounds like a real food pleaser on many, on many levels. So thank you so much for being willing to share that with me. I appreciate oh, it. Oh, my, my pleasure. So I feel a little silly about asking you this when you seem to be an extremely busy person with writing about food and writing cookbooks and all of that. But I'm wondering if you have any other interests that we would be surprised to know about. Well, I don't think my readers would be surprised, but people that don't know me might be interested to know I've, I've been involved in tango for many, many years, so that's a big passion. I'm a tango dancer. i very big into scents and perfumes, so I've written a lot about fragrance over the years for different markets, uh, for my readers and certainly other markets. And pro- meditation, <laughs> something a little bit calms you down from the kitchen. Uh-huh. But uh, anything, um, and I do, as I say, I do a lot of other feature writing, not on food, as well as food for medium.com. A lot of uh, op-ed features on current events of the day, experiences we all have in life, just little vignettes of things. I write a lot on tango as well. Mm. And how did you get interested in tango? Well, I was a dancer, like a lot of little girls um, in my youth. And as you get older, I think it's a little bit harder to continue on in in jazz or in ballet as we get older. I think the dancer stays in, in many of us, mm-hmm. but the opportunities to dance are a little bit narrow. We don't think, we, we leave the studios, I think, those of us who dance at 15, 16, 17, unless we're heading off into a professional career in dance. And later on in life, I saw an ad for tango, a trial dance class, and I thought, bingo, I know, I love dancing, and this is something different. It looks like I could do it. I mean, it's different dancing in a couple dance. Tango, you obviously are led if you're not experienced. But, um, and since that time, I interest in, I've done other dances as well. And the whole dance world, much like the food world, has you know, expanded exponentially. Uh, and it's, it's uh, beautiful music. And also, it's just a beautiful dance to watch. I, so that's... It's a very human... I, people think it's very seductive. And it is. But it's one of the most human dances I know, uh, where you, you know, 
you take um, a chance with a total stranger, you generally don't even know people's names. They ask you to dance and you're at close quarters very, very quickly. And there's a, an amazing human connection uh, with people. It's a very, I don't think people know that about tango. They always see the romance part of it. Right. And I think also being a physical thing, it's, it's nice to balance what you do between your intellect and your physicality, I think. Oh, really great way to say that. And on your interest in perfume and scents, was, did that come out of your food background at all? Or was that just something you happened upon and became interested I think I, I, these interests go back a very long time. I think if you're interested in, in the senses, I think, I mean, um, perfume is another type of alchemy, So and cooking and, and baking are a type of alchemy, and fragrance is, I think it's our last uh, sense to go, is our sense of smell. And I just think, you know, the fragrances from the kitchen or from, you know, the vanity table of your perfume are very riveting, they're very evocative, and it just always appealed to me. And I mean, some interests you take up when you're young and you never really sort of think about them and they keep you companions the rest of your, your days somehow. And perfume is one of those. And I don't, I don't see a big difference between perfumes you might use, let's say from Chanel, versus um, the perfume of an orange, orange zest, let's say, that revives you or uplifts you. But I think it's part of our life's enhancement and enlivens things. And, Oh, that's really great. It's a great way to think about that important sense that sometimes I think you take advantage of. Or, I mean, you don't, uh, you don't pay attention to you it. You take for, for granted. granted. Yes, that's what yeah, I meant. Yeah, you don't take. Yeah, and so how nice that... Well, now with the... Uh, well, I was going to say the interest in essential oils, too, is quite... Uh, I'm interested in that avenue. And that all, you know, it's all comes from the medicine man, the shaman. It's all, these are really very old pursuits. Right. And they're using that in massage and meditation and various kinds yeah. of therapies. So it's, it's like it is getting back to nature. It's not almost like it is getting back to nature and paying yeah. attention to those things. I mean, when we were living in tribes, I mean, the shaman was also the pharmacologist and the cook. They, were, they weren't the, the divisions that we now have. We, have. we divide everything up. But these were all one type of study at one point. Right. So it's nice to be able to find a way in your own life to be back in touch with all of that. Well, it's uh, entertaining for my readers as well, I think. <laughs> um, and I always, I always try and relate a little bit of what's going on in the kitchen or the seasons and what's going on in life. Oh, I love that. Uh, it's clear that I'm going to have to be um, more cognizant of your activities and um, checking into your website to see what you're up to next because it's it's hard to tell what where you're going to go next. Well, I have um, you know, it's a I have a once monthly newsletter. It's a free newsletter that people could sign up for, and they get a free recipe every month. And I usually have a small essay. I do a lot of product reviews as well. Uh, I just reviewed a Swedish mixer, which is kind of interesting, and some wheat mills because I got interested in sourdough baking. Ah. So I do get into housewares and whatever I think might be of interest to me might be of interest to people reading my work. Whoa, that's great. Well, Marcy, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy day to, to chat with me. And, oh, this has been so fun. And I hope that we get to connect again in the not-too-distant future and find out more about what you're up to and some of your writings, because I think it will be really interesting to my listeners to not just get the Canadian perspective, but just find out some of the interesting things that you're doing that have to do with Jewish food and connections to food. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure being your guest. Thank you for listening to The Big Schmear. 
Our recording engineer in Montreal is Shadi Riarchi, and my recording and mix engineer in Chicago is Steve Robinson. The Big Schmear theme music is performed by Cavatino Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. If you like The Big Schmear, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. If you have comments or questions, I'd love to hear from you. Please send your email to beth at thebigschmear.com. And be sure to check out my website, thebigschmear.com, to find recipes shared by my guests. Thank you and happy eating. Happy eating.